Welcome, everybody, to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we explore the natural environment, our society, and a company's governance structure through the lens of the weekly news. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week, Megan Eastman and Rick Marshall join me in studio to discuss the Council of Institutional Investors' overhaul for dealing with executive compensation policies. And then Jillian Millard joins me to discuss buildings on the forefront of climate change. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned. Okay, so for our first story, the Council of Institutional Investors, which is a nonprofit association of pension funds and other employee benefit funds, foundations, and endowments that promote the interests of institutional investors in the United States. This body urged public companies to dial back the complexity of their pay plans and set longer periods for measuring performance for incentive awards. In simple terms, CII, as they are called, asked companies to fix their pay structures and asked boards and investors to step up their scrutiny of CEO pay that is in the form of company stock that accrues value upon the achievement of corporate performance milestones. So I know it's a lot, and I'm going to explain it soon in our stack card, but the issue is the pay of CEOs is steadily rising and the market remains mediocre. So let me explain to you what pay per performance actually looks like. How are the packages for these CEOs actually structured? So in theory, pay for performance packages seem really simple and good. If the company performs well, the CEO gets more money, and both the CEO and shareholders are happy. But in practice, these pay packages are extremely complex. There are different milestones that different companies measure their success on. Some companies focus on operational fundamentals as a barometer for performance. Others focus entirely on share price or total shareholder return. And there are a lot of targets built into each pay package and milestone. And if that wasn't enough, after the third year of a CEO's tenure at many U.S. companies, multiple awards from each preceding year begin to vest or gain value in some cases based on different performance measures. All of these competing factors make it hard for investors to understand what pay package is useful and what isn't. And luckily, Rick is a governance analyst expert, and he's been studying this stuff for years. And so he's joined Megan and me today because, Rick, it's hard for me to understand this, and it's hard for me to understand why this has to be so complicated. Well, the, the first big issue is is this, this annual... Um, um, sort of reload uh, that that makes it inherently complex because you have multiple plans then then paying out over time. Um, the second big problem is how the performance measures are determined for a particular company. They vary from company to company. Um, when they're share price related, which is in fact what the proxy advisors have favored over the last n- number of years, um, it becomes almost a self-fulfilling pro- uh, a prophecy if the if the market is doing well, everybody's going to benefit. And we've reached a place now where it's very difficult for uh, board members, compensation uh, committee members, and certainly for investors to be able to say with any certainty that the um, hitting particular targets at a particular company and getting paid out actually has something to do with what the CEO did. Uh, as opposed to being something going on with the industry more broadly or even the entire market. Um, and so that, that's part of the complexity, too. These are uh, complicated plans surrounded by complicated issues of market value and, and growth and so on. 
um, listening to Rick, I was thinking about the research that I did a couple years ago looking at the construction of CEO pay packages through a gender lens. There aren't that many female CEOs, so there's a limited data set. But when I looked at that, I found that, you know, not only is it not surprising that in general, women get paid less than men, even when they're CEOs, but the actual construction of the packages was different. That what they got in cash, what they got in stock, what they got in options varied, and that the women were less likely to get stock options, which tend to have a higher ultimate payout. So the the complexity of it really just from one CEO to another, it, it's not even across the board complexity. It, it actually varies person to person, company to company within the same company even. Wow. So the, there's this massive market discrepancy. Then there's also different human being discrepancy and different diversity discrepancy. So I kind of want to play to my silliness here and just get back to why this is. It seems like investors should just tell companies that uh, if the stock price gets better, then they can make more money. And if it doesn't, they can get less money. And there you go. You're, you're aligned with the company's market performance and thus your shareholders are happy. And I know market performance doesn't always mean the company is doing excellent, but it's better than having these overly complex systems, right? Actually, though, it raises uh, the key question here. And if you, if you read the, the um, CII uh, policy statement, you'll see that what they're favoring instead of performance-based shares are re- time-restricted shares. Now, Again, the language here is is tricky because on the one hand you have performance-based shares. Oh, that sounds great. We're going to link pay. The payout will be linked to performance. Sounds great. On the other hand, you have time-based shares. Oh, you mean they're just they're going to make money just because they're there for X period of years? But if you think about it, that actually uh, is closer to a true alignment of the CEO's interest with the interest of investors, that time-based restricted share. Uh, Another thing that's happened is that the size of these awards, particularly when you have those three and four X multiples paying out, the size of these awards um, in terms of actual realized pay have now become so big that uh, the, the potential for misalignment is, is, is magnified even further. And it makes it uh, far more difficult to really see exactly how the actions of the CEO as a manager have resulted in the company uh, and, and investors in the company gaining at, at an equivalent level. So it, it's all out of whack. Um, we're now, what, three years into here in the U.S., disclosure of the pay gap, the median employee versus the CEO. And when this was first announced, people thought that it was going to be you know, really an informative and kind of galvanize people into action around CEO pay or, or perhaps worker pay also because it would illustrate this growing inequality. But it really hasn't had that effect, not yet. And it seems that at least Part of that is because of the complexity of measuring it. It's not that simple. I'd actually like to dig deeper into that because, Rick, you wrote this piece in 2016. I'm going to get the deep cuts here called, Are CEOs Paid for Performance? And I would like to read a particularly juicy section, if I may, where you say, quote, If a company's total summary pay was effective in incentivizing superior future performance, we would have expected to see a strong correlation between higher pay figures and higher 10-year total shareholder returns. 
We found very little statistical evidence, though, to support this, and companies whose CEOs were paid above their sector median over the 10-year period significantly, and here's the important part, I think, underperformed those companies where cumulative CEO summary pay was below their peer group media. Basically, what you're saying here is that returns for people that get paid less were better than returns for people that got paid more. So what that means to me is it sounds like people in power should get paid a bit less. Maybe they'll do a bit better. They'll work a bit harder if they get paid a little bit less. Well, words are important here, though, because it isn't just lowest. I think a better way to say, to, to restate those findings is that companies that were more conservative in setting targets actually achieved a greater alignment. The performance, um, the performance at companies that were more conservative in their, their targets, in setting targets, paid out more appropriately when there was strong performance and paid out more appropriately when there was less performance. So it's not that those companies always performed better. You can't just say, well, lower means we'll do better. It's that it, it, a more conservative approach was much more likely to result in a solid alignment between the actual payout and the actual performance, which of course is, is the goal. So let's bring this back to where you introduced it, Mike, with CII, Council of Institutional Investors, now advocating a different way of doing CEO pay. So this isn't the first time that investors, institutional investors, have kind of galvanized and organized to try to get this thing under control. We've seen several years now of say on pay resolutions it seems like that hasn't really worked despite the initial enthusiasm. Well, there are a couple of issues there, but I, I, I have to confess to a degree of frustration with, with um, w- where that's gone and where it's potentially going. I, I've been saying for a couple of years, oh, maybe this will be the year there will be pushback. Um, clearly, the, the new policy that's been, just been uh, published by CII is, is, you know, is a good indication that there, there is a growing uh, degree of pushback. But when you look at the actual votes, for the most part, investors have approved pay plans just as written. There really hasn't been a, 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 a huge pushback. Now, that did begin to shift quite a bit last year, but only for a few key investors. So a few investors like CalPERS, most notably, um, Norges Bank, um, did make steps, did make changes to their voting policies, and did vote no at a much higher number of companies than they previously had. Yeah. That, that may accelerate further. Yeah, right. CalPERS initiated a program. They looked at data. They looked at research. They looked at our research. And then they looked at the issue holistically, and they now had identified they identified 1,195 firms to vote no on for CEO pay. So to understand how to vote appropriately seems to take a lot of time and resources, which leads into my last question. Where do you guys think this is going to go? Will investors dedicate the necessary time to address this disparity between CEO pay and performance? I think there are a lot of forces still aligned on the side of complexity and paying CEOs more in ways that are hard to trace. So you may get institutional investors who have a lot of resources and expertise digging into this and kind of digging in their heels more like Helpers has done. But I think across the board, that's probably just 
not realistic. Again, if it, if it were just a, a matter of performance, that, that very simple original idea of, of handing out shares that the CEO would hold until they leave the company or maybe even sometime after it because you want to ensure that they're going to leave something solid, um, that would still be the simplest, absolutely best way to ensure alignment. I mean, it, it works every time. There's no question. If a company does poorly, the shares are worth less and they end up with less money. If the company does well, they end up with more. You know, this is what investors are faced with. So that's the alignment. It's when you add in all these other layers of a complexity, which in theory are intended to improve the alignment, that you increase the risk of losing alignment. And what our studies have shown is that we've really lost that alignment. So Jillian, thanks for joining me today. For our next story, I was reading the internet the other day, and you'll never believe it, but I found a report that was written by the Columbia Law School, uh, the Sabin Climate Law School at Columbia University, that was ranking the climate preparedness of different U.S. states, and let me tell you, it's a doozy. First, it starts off with this. Between 1980 and 2019, the U.S. endured 250 climate and weather disasters that cost uh, that each cost more than $1 billion, resulting in a total cost exceeding $1.7 trillion. Then it gives you the worst states, Kentucky, South Carolina, Texas, and Wyoming. And Kentucky and Texas don't even use the word climate change in their reports. Tisk tisk. And it also tells you the best states, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Hawaii, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Washington. So the reason Julian is joining me today is she's our premier geospatial analyst and looks intensively at issues around physical risk caused by climate disaster factors. And she's working on this great paper examining the UK real estate market's preparedness for flooding risks, which will soon be out. Keep an eye out. It's going to be a great paper. But she also wrote this blog where she mapped flood risk data from the UK's environmental agency to 11,000-plus private real estate assets in England with an MSCI's database of measured client portfolios to assess which ones were most vulnerable to flooding. So, Jillian, since this Sabin report came out, and then there was this New York Times article that was just released that talked about a study that found climate risk in the housing market probably has echoes of the subprime crisis. I was wondering if you could kind of take us through your work analyzing physical risk to assets because of climate change. And maybe it's best to start off by talking about the research you did to write this blog. So what I did was I looked at a data set that was put out recently by the UK Environment Agency that looks at flooding in England. And it looks at flooding from both rivers and the sea. Um, and it talks about flooding in terms of risk. So it has everything from low to high risk, it's starting with very low, low, medium, and high risk. Um, and it takes into account not just the hazard, so the, the, the flooding in general, but it takes also into account the local defenses that are in place, which is an important thing to look at because, for instance, in London, in Greater London, um, a lot of the properties near the Thames River are protected by the Thames Barrier. Yeah, I remember you were telling me about this. It's the second largest movable flood defense system, and it works similar to a flood defense wall of an eight-story building and protects uh, a lot of London from extreme flooding. And there was a study in the UK, um, maybe to toot their own horn, but it also said that there was, for every one pound that was spent on flooding mitigation, you save eight pounds. Uh, and you 
You've published data on all these assets that are at risk because they are in flood zones. So if we kind of take this this true, this the fact that you can spend a little uh, to gain a lot in terms of climate mitigation, is it up to investors to try to entice local governments by saying, if you want us to build here, you have to build up these mitigated practices or, or something else? Well, a lot of real estate is held for a number of years. Real estate is a long-term investment for most investors interested in real estate. So really, they might have a property that's based in a flood zone that they, um, they, they don't realize when they invest in that property that it's, it's, in, it's vulnerable to flooding. And so sometimes the, the investor has to be an active participant in figuring out how to mitigate um, and that has a lot to do with what's going on on the regional level. So getting involved with local policy sometimes is, is something that is, that is necessary for an investor. How would you uh, suggest they do that? So I think what, what's first important is for an investor to take their portfolio of properties and determine which properties are at risk. And really using geospatial analysis is the best way to do that. So uh, for those of you who don't know, geospatial analysis is taking data that is uh, locationally based. So anything that has to do with where the property is situated and trying to figure out how that property will be affected by physical climate hazards such as flooding, extreme weather, hurricanes, and, and any, any other things that are expected or projected to get more um, extreme and, and, and are expected to occur more. Um, and so understanding what your, what your risks are is the first step. And then after that, trying to figure out what, what, what are the ways that you can mitigate against that risk. Really, investors are going to have three choices. They can either avoid high-risk areas and stop investing in areas like um, Miami or Houston, where they've seen properties flood time and time again. Or they can you know, transfer the risk if there's an if there's an insurance company who is is still looking to insure that area, or uh, maybe they want to tr- transfer the risk to their tenants and charge more money um, for tenants to live in certain buildings that are at higher risk, um, they might look to um, and to partner with uh, you know like kind of private public partnership with uh, the regional governments to f- see what kind of mitigation and plan is in place, and that that would be to you know manage the risk. That would be the third option. Right, and bringing it back to the beginning, they also need to pay attention to local jurisdictions because, as you said, it might be difficult for them to know whether or not the place they're building property on is going to be inundated by climate events. So they have to make sure a state's jurisdiction is at least mentioning climate change as a risk so they can build in the reality of future problems into their uh, investment portfolio. All right, that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Megan, Jillian, and Rick for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. And I wanted to thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. It always helps. And talk to you next week. Have a good one.
The MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.